And welcome to the Future of Gaming. You're listening to our weekly Future of Gaming podcast. Today's discussion, um, we've brought a few known faces to the podcast. We have the usual Devin Becker, who's the gaming lead at NAMI. We have Tim Cotton, a very vehement participant of the FogDAO Discord, who's the co-founder and CEO at Scripted. And then we have David Benham, who joined us a couple of weeks ago. Is co-founder and CEO at Ready Games, and we um, we had a, a whole episode breaking down what Ready Games is up to. My name is Nico Vreke. I host these things, also investor at Bitcraft. And uh, today's discussion is around um, two new technologies that we've discussed ample, uh, like amply separately, which is AI and Web3. Um, and today we're we're bringing those two together. So the initial start of this wider conversation came when, when David basically pinged me and he's like, this is top of mind for me. Um, he shared what he was thinking about and I thought it warranted a conversation and an episode. So here we are. So David, why don't you take us away, um, walk us through your thinking, set the scene, and then we can, um, we can dive in. Well, first of all, thanks, Nico, uh, for having me on. And Tim, great to meet you. And Devin, great to see you as well. Absolutely. I'm excited for this uh, discussion because I think in the in the popular sort of conversation, obviously AI has taken center stage for good and for bad. Um, and then of course we, some of us work in web three and we've been thinking a lot about like how these technologies, web three and AI might actually be converging and working with each other. And here at ready, we've developed a thesis, uh, did center initially around gaming, which is like, where would AI and web three really interact? And at the core of it, I think we got to um, a couple of, of conclusions, and they really do relate to the core beliefs around, I think, blockchain and uh, the notions of distributed computing, distributed ownership, which is so central to Web3. Uh, and I think this relates directly to AI in the following way, which is the challenge now with AI is it is highly, highly centralized. We are seeing so many services being financed and built that when you peel away the onion, really rely on three major large language models. I call them the big three. It's Facebook's, it's Google's, and it's Microsoft and OpenAI open kind of munched together, right? That's the GPT product. And I'll just refer to them as the big three. Now, there's other large language models out there, but realistically, those big three uh, are the supermajority of the entire AI universe right now. And so all of these services that are building on top of it are essentially creating huge amounts of value for those big three. And we can get later into... Well, is there a defensible mode here? If you're using these big three large language models, can't anyone else essentially replicate whatever you're doing because the underlying IP doesn't even belong to you? Um, these are more like investor questions that, that should be something that the people, you know, putting capital in this. These are hard questions to answer. But I think even if you separate that investor hat question, there's a bigger society question, right, which AI brings up, which is essentially what are the ethics of this thing? Uh, what does it mean if so much data is ultimately owned by these big three? We've already had almost a decade of conversation and stress around social media um, and, and sort of the dominance of app stores and things like that. You've seen places like the European Union like struggle mightily around these questions more than the United States, for example, in terms of how do we rein some of this in, especially because they're not European companies. And you see with AI kind of a magnification now of potentially this very dominant position by these big three. And so... 
what do we do about that? And, and, and I think the answer, which might be, oh, well, let's stand up a competitor that's somehow going to be different. Well, you're building the same kind of model, you know, an equity cap table. You're going to put a lot of money into that. And then you're just going to have a big four. And it's like, great, congratulations. And maybe out, out of the big four, one of the original big three will, will fall out. And now you're back to the big three. Um, round and round this little mulberry bush we went, but did we really solve the underlying problem of this consolidation of power and ownership? The answer is no. So this is a long-winded way of just setting the stage of like, what do we do with the ownership around AI models? And the answer, I think, begins to point a little bit to Web3. So what Web3 promises is that by the creation and use of a product, everyone contributing to it can become fractional owners into it, right? That's a very well understood component in Web3, that as you work, and at Ready we know this too, like as we work to build uh, sort of gaming infrastructure, the players in the community can become fractional owners in the project called Ready, for example. This actually aligns really, really interestingly with AI models, right? Where we are all being asked in a way to contribute to the creation of these large language models through our use of these products. Like we are doing that, but none of us are getting any fractional ownership for the contributions we're making. And the question then arises, if people were to start taking the existing large language model, like algorithmic methodologies, like those are understood, but then integrated them with a fractional ownership model, which is the blockchain Web3 innovation, would those models have a meaningful competitive advantage over the big three? Because people would understand that by contributing to them, building them, working towards them, they'd be through the smart contracts and other methods, a way for them to get ownership into the project, which means maybe the quality of those models would actually be greater over time than the more centralized models, because we'd all have both economic and philosophical incentives to work with the more open model. So that's, a, that's like one really big sort of AI question right there, that is there from a business logic standpoint, a more valuable path using Web3 as a cooperative method to truly at scale across tens of millions of contributors, possibly more, create this type of ownership model. And would that in a way, begin to solve the centralization question, because now we'd have something that would be more cooperative. We could all plug into it, all use it, and by the way, pay for it in some way that then distributed those dividends or rewards to everyone who contributed to it. So it's such a sort of DAO, Web3 way of approaching it. So that's just the first giant chunk. And then there's a second giant chunk. If that one wasn't big enough, I'll give you the other big chunk, uh, which is this whole notion of autonomous agents. And, and Tim, you've been working on this kind of idea, and you'll talk about it. I'm really excited to hear what you're doing with game design and autonomous agents. But this idea of autonomous agents goes back at least 30 years, maybe even more. It's one of the original foundational ideas in AI. Um, when they were first really thought about, and this goes back to the early 90s, they were called intelligent agents. There was even a company called General Magic that raised $400 million to build intelligent agents. It came out of the MIT Media Lab. Patty Mays, the professor, is still there. She was a pioneer in thinking of this stuff. It's a completely centralized network. It was so centralized, it even predated the internet. It had its own internet it was going to build, and its own PDAs, like iPhones, connected to it. And the whole thing was this massive problem it had to solve. But underneath it was this idea of these autonomous intelligent agents that had legal authority to take actions on behalf of their owners, whether those are companies or people. And they had all kinds of ideas like, hey, these agents could go out and like negotiate airline tickets for you or band together into a buying pool and collectively make a purchase decision, and you'd all get a deep discount because you got like a million agents to agree to buy something together. The problem with this stuff is it was completely centralized and it required so much kind of delegation of authority to a single corporation that, of course, nobody wanted to play nice with this. It's the same problem with the big three, right? We're just seeing this back then. Everyone was like, yee, wait a minute. I'm giving all this to somebody. Now, flash forward to 2023. Well, the notion of a smart contract 
This ability to do trustless transactions, trusted trustless transactions across a network with smart contracts, wrapping intelligent agents into smart contracts, and now giving them the legal autonomy to really go out and negotiate based on that smart contract with other agents is a potentially revolutionary breakthrough. That is a Web3 technology that when fused together with the agent model could finally unlock this deep vision that goes back 30 years or more and allow it to be decentralized, distributed, and really, really scale without any one person owning this technology, which, by the way, would make it far more likely to be massively adopted the way nobody owned the underlying protocols for the internet, like TCP IP and other things, which themselves are, in a way, earlier versions of this kind of decentralized network, right? The notion of packet switching, things like that. This is all of a kind. And so we see ourselves on this threshold right now where AI can go in one of two ways, massively centralized with a few companies owning all the data, everything we do, huge amounts of economic upside. If there are multi-trillion dollar companies today, there are multi-multi-trillion dollar companies in the future, kind of terrifying. Or we just sort of really focus in on how do we break this up to be decentralized and distributed through the force of will of people self-organizing to do this, knowing all the technology is there. We actually have all the ingredients. It is there today. That's what's so awesome about it. The execution risk on this is pretty low from a technical standpoint. I don't want to dismiss it as like trivial, but it's, it's doable. The issue is more the social capital. Are we willing to really band together and do this? What are the incentives? How would this be organized? But I just want to put out there as a kind of mission statement, like why can't we just go ahead, decentralize all of these AI large language models, all become fractional owners, whether it's through intelligent agents, the building of these models, and essentially live in a world where we don't find ourselves in a 10x worse situation with a handful of monopolies controlling even more GDP, even more global economic output, just because we didn't even bother trying to do this. So thank you all. <laughs> I've set the stage. Let's discuss. <laughs> wow. That was something amazing. Uh, appreciate that, David. <laughs> wow. A bunch to unpack there. Um, you know what? Instead of trying to summarize it, um, there's too much to summarize. I'll, I'll, I'll... So Devin, Tim, who of you, on a scale to one to ten, how hard like, do you want to respond to this? Would be the first to respond. I see both of you almost exploding. Yeah, Devin, I'll, I'll let you push go first. back super hard, but like, yeah, uh, like that way, that way, Tim can respond in a positive let's, way. Let's have Devin start. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I'll, so, I'll, so I'll give off, the hopium. I'm, I, I mean, like, I'm super bullish on all this stuff because I'm just a tech futurist at heart. But at the same time, like, there's a lot of problems with this, uh, like, that need to be solved. And if you look back at the history of a lot of technology, like, fundamentally, uh, like this idea generally doesn't work only because of like the forces so, so, of capitalism Devin, and stuff. When you say this Sorry. idea, Sorry. Yeah, the, there was uh, a lot the decentralization said, right? of AI, right? Like, so okay. let me get, focus on that yeah. part first. Yeah. So when it comes to like decentralizing the AI stuff, right, and making it this big, like sort of decentralized project, if if, if you look at like what are the best examples of so, us trying to do something like that, the internet, right? Uh, it started out in a lot of great ways. Like it was pretty, you know, decentralized. Like centralized at first around colleges, and then decentralized, and then recentralized as people became like the ISPs became like a couple different companies, like a lot of different choke points. Domains are controlled by a certain number of companies and organizations so there's like it becomes consolidated at some point right uh, whether that be a bunch of organizations or one right obviously we want to avoid the one situation and i think generally you will for the most part at least have two kind of things and, and the other thing with that is like we want to talk about you know ownership and contribution and stuff and it's kind of funny that like if you look about it most industries tended to be built originally around piracy so like the internet itself was built up around piracy to an extent hollywood was built around piracy of 
foreign movies. Like we tend to build up these industries through that piracy and, and AI is no exception, right? Like this idea of all the stuff that was contributed to bootstrap that was essentially pirated into it. And so I think, you know, there'll, there'll always be that kind of phase where like tons of stuff is being put into it that like no one really owns or controls or is marked as like this, you know, I deserve some sort of like uh, attribution for this. And then down the road, maybe we have some sort of like ways of handling that, right? Like now we have content creators on the internet and people like getting, you know, attribution for stuff, but theft still happens readily. And, uh, and I'm sure like what, you know, Dave is trying to say about the blockchain helping with attribution and like tracking stuff. There's definitely stuff that can work there in terms of, you know, the, the, the public ledger and the blockchain. But I think there's a certain amount of human ingenuity that'll work around a lot of technological answers to try and enforce this stuff. Uh, that I would that I would love to say it would work, but it's just it's a little problematic, uh, and and also like this idea of having a lot of this stuff work with autonomous agents is is like great, but we have a couple of problems to solve around that when it comes to bad actors as well, which is like we're talking about all this autonomous stuff, and the blockchain is not known for having reversibility. So if things happen on the blockchain that you were not intending for them to happen, you know, in human situations, most of the time you can undo stuff, right? You can get people to fix something or whatever we have to do with. Like if you go to the grocery store and use those self-checkouts, about 50% of the time or more, you're going to have to deal with a human still, right? Because some kind of problem with the machine, you have to have a human there to kind of sort it out. We haven't gotten like past that point, regardless of large language models or not, we're still like not really to the point. Uh, and then you start to put immutability on that with the blockchain that could become really problematic really fast because of the people's ability to like attack it. I mean, you see these huge irreversible theft attacks, right? That happen, you know, like the Axie bridge or all these other ones where, like, we're not going to have another situation where we, like, fork the entire blockchain like Ethereum, right? Uh, so that sort of irreversibility is going to have to be accounted for in these ideas of autonomous agents where, you know, we have these sorts of, like, breaks or, like, things that we could do to kind of reverse things or undo actions. And then what happens when uh, these sorts of things are taken over by bad actors? Uh, you know, we, we talk about things like identity and cryptography for these things, but I come from also doing red team cybersecurity. And one of the things you learn very quickly, especially Windows environments, is it's very easy to mimic people's identity and then piggyback off that from identity to identity to identity. And it doesn't matter like whether or not there's authorization or passwords or two-factor, there's ways to get over those things. And then now you are being treated as that person and when we decentralize identity, that becomes even more problematic, right? Because we're, we're counting on the machines to enforce that, whether that be through essentially public key encryption that we're using with the blockchain or whatever other two-factor method or even facial recognition, all that stuff has flaws. So we just need to keep all that stuff in mind that like all this can be hijacked and used against us. And unfortunately, the, the governments, for example, would, would tend to do that. And, and they've proven they'll do that. And I'm saying the government's plural because I'm not picking on anyone, particular government, because most of them tend to do that, whether they're dictators or U.S. government, for example, uh, tends to just set up all these backdoors, tends to control these things, even if we think we're decentralized and controlling it. Look at Tor, you know, it, it, enter and exit nodes pretty much controlled uh, to an extent uh, by government, you know, NSA and stuff like that. So as much as I would love for all this to work, we got to be like cognizant of a lot of these problems, I think. And, and I don't want to go you know, too far down any of these rabbit holes, but, but that like is my immediate thoughts on that stuff. I'm going to hold off on responding and let Tim maybe say what he wants to say. <laughs> wow. I, so I, f I feel like a man who brought a mace to a sword fight of words, right? I'm not going to have the elegance and eloquence to like 
necessarily reach everything that David was um, talking about in his initial introduction. But um, I, I want to start with um, just kind of what some of what Devin's saying. Um, I'm trying to think about the primary reasons you would use a blockchain in any relationship with AI, right? And I think what David is pointing out is reputation is one of the biggest parts, right? Being able, if we have autonomous agents um, executing code, um, writing things, publishing things, if we have these autonomous agents representing a virtual digital twin, right? And that's really what we're talking about here, digital twinning like Tim. Um, it needs to be bound to my own identity, and then it needs to be marked as an AI aspect of my identity in a perfect world, right? Now, there is a framework that the World Wide Web Consortium has put together for this. Um, this is a public standard called the Decentralized Identity Document, right? And it's run by the Decentralized Identity Foundation. Um, there is a method for publishing these kinds of reputational proofs and setting up identity in a decentralized format, whether you're on a blockchain or off. Um, so then we ask, okay, if such a chain came to exist that handled these reputations, that's great. What else is the blockchain for AI for? And I can think of a couple of things. Um, you know, if I'm, I'm practical thinking, not all of us have 16 gig video cards, right? Not all of us have access to the ability to execute these large language models or diffusion models for image generation. In that case, is it worth um, creating a massively distributed computational system that can be used for both training models and then, as David is suggesting, have fractional ownership based on how much you're contributing to the overall network? That's a great use for a blockchain uh, system as far as like proving that you participated and proving what the value of your participation was. Do we extend that so that you can call that um, – distributed network for doing on-the-fly stuff, such as image generation. Hey, I don't want to go to Google Colab, or I don't want to go to uh, my own model that I'm having to host on my own hardware. Can I just call something from a blockchain and do it, and then get results? And the use case for that right, is either pseudo-anonymity or just privacy of your own stuff. Say you could host your own model ephemerally. And if we ha – I don't believe this exists yet because I don't believe we in any way generate diffusion models that have encryption already embedded in them, right? So if there's an application for future homo homomorphic encryption in it, wow, that would be an interesting field to study, right? So I, I see like all this cool potential. Um, so I, I kind of put it back to what Devin's saying, people bias towards convenience, Right. That's why Web2 exists, because no one really wanted to host their own email servers. Right. We all love the Gmails and the Hotmails of the world. So what does that look like for this fusion, this proposed fusion of Web3, which is already really hard for people to get involved with and AI until companies are creating like technology that I can just spin up and the AI looks like the movie Her and just says, hey, by the way, I need your permission and then I'm going to go do all this stuff for you. Well, uh, a lot of this is going to be command line stuff and sitting there and being hackers, and I, I, that's not accessible to everyone yet. So admittedly, I'm, I'm working on that, right? I, I adopted Yohei Nakajima's baby AGI framework, that entire methodology. I've been pushing stuff out because it is amazing how we can synthesize the last 30 or 40 years of AI, right? All the systemic formal logic of structured 
AI with deep learning being the translation layer for all the loose human data. And because that's the only thing that was ever stopping the works of the early intelligence agents that um, David's talking yeah. about. Like I'm connected here with um, – I have a residency for my company at George Mason University. Um, the head of the Learning Agent Center of the AI area is Dr. Takuch, and he wrote – the book on building intelligent agents, right? So these are people who see what deep learning can do to take human loose text and information and then turn that into the language of structurism that they can use for their formal AI logic. And there's a great fusion area there, which is what Yohei figured out, right? That baby AGI stuff is all about structuring like the feedback loops. So I'll stop there for a second. Yeah. So j just to interject for a little bit we went a bunch of different ways and i'd like to mm -hmm. uh center you know our focus um for this episode and then perhaps we can touch on some of the other discussions later um obviously you know if if you agreed with my choice david um devin you pointed out that there are a bunch of technical and maybe even economical um, complexities with having autonomous agents you know, help us in our daily lives and there's some security issues there. What I would like to do is skip that discussion for the time being and just assume we live in a world where that is technically um, feasible so we can focus on, I think, you know, we might get to some interesting insights around the, like, around the decentralization of, of AI models because that's something that I've I haven't spent too much time thinking about myself. Um, if everyone agrees, um, David, if, if you agree, you can uh, perhaps, you know, Give maybe a little bit of rebuttal or your thoughts on on the points raised just now. And I would say we should also make sure we're we're if we're talking about AI models, we're like delineate if we're talking about LLMs or some other thing, just because like that's not the only AI model, right? And I think yeah, it gets kind of pigeonholed into that when you, especially when you're talking about like these three companies controlling everything. Well, it's like yeah, for for that particular tech. Wait, so there are not only three AIs in the world that are <laughs> LLMs that are no shit. No. <laughs> yeah. Just visit Hugging Face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, Nico, just to recap, I think your question is, if you could just recap the question that you're you're looking for here, because honestly, like I didn't really ask a question. I said, you know, we've heard you've 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 laid out your thought process. You set the scene. We got some rebuttal from from Devin, who I believe said initially that a lot of the internet is already built on privacy where there's actually no concern for who owns what. Um, and, you know, to my, to my mind, one of the cases you were making is we should all own yeah. um, the, the models, the AI that were trained in the end on what we provided to the Internet. Um, so Yeah, it's a philosophical, I mean, it really is a philosophical question here about social engineering. Like, what do we want here? I mean, is this a common utility that we can all be using or is it really owned by, you know, Again, a small handful of companies, I think we can agree that's really troubling for a small handful of companies to own all this, especially because it's entering a kind of escape velocity now where more kind of begins to generate more logarithmically. And so the gap there can potentially get larger and larger. So it's a bit of an urgent question, right? Because if these things are left untouched um, at some point, you know, they just move so far out there that it may be harder and harder to compete with them in any other structure. I think the the incentive uh, to create a method for us to get in there and start generating data that we collectively are responsible for is very high. Like everyone is extremely sensitized to what we're talking about. I think there's social alignment, you know, not just on an individual basis, but on a collective basis. I think we're all 
extremely educated now at why this is worrisome. The whole notion that we are the product at Facebook is like a conventional wisdom now that like, oh, you do all this stuff on the Facebook or the meta platform writ large. And in exchange for that, they kind of quote unquote, give you this product for free. And then they make something like 80 to $400 a year off of you, depending on your psychographic and demographic profile, which is essentially what happens. So we know that that's become a problem at this point. It creates all kinds of external costs, externalities that we don't like. And this AI thing is just that times 10 potentially in terms of the external costs. They're really, really there. And so the question becomes, we know the frameworks on how to potentially create a, a, a decentralized ownership model, right? Those have been developed over the last 10 years in the Web3 context. They show up as DAOs and other things. What would it mean to begin to generate something like that with the express purpose of creating a foundation for the development of these models, whether they're LLMs or other models, where we know that computationally they benefit by being shared, right? Because it's the myriad contributions from different sources that, in a sense, elevate the ability of that model to be more performant, right? The more sort of touch points come into it, the more it's literally going to evolve or learn um, in a more performant manner. So the volume of engagement is very much related to the I would say the accuracy or the value of the model over time. And so can we create incentives through this ownership model for people to opt into contributing to that model versus some other model? And I'll also say there's so many actors here that would be aligned with this because everyone who isn't one of those big three would be aligned with this, which is like, wow, that's a lot of different actors. Um, you even get down to, to civil society, like governments would be aligned with this. And I know we often are like, boo, boo, governments, whatever. But, but sometimes they actually can do really valuable things. Like they can actually help with some of um, the powering of these models. Remember, you know, I live in Canada, for instance, where we have, where I am in Montreal, we have some of the largest reserves of green energy in the world. Like we have massive amounts of hydropower just spilling out of here so much that we have surplus. Like it's just a god awful massive quantity. Well, in the context of this type of model we're talking about of collective ownership, people could literally governments might say, I'm going to donate electricity time to some of this processing. I can. I have all this hydro. It's totally green. It aligns with my civic values. I don't want these big three. They're not even Canadian companies like dominating this market. Why not donate uh, some quantity of, of power you know, to allow these things to happen? No one's going to donate to the big three to do that. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting like alliances that can be built if this thing is designed well, where it begins to get competitive advantages that go beyond just, oh, people would like to use this model better. You can also subsidize it, essentially. You can do things because it has an alignment with other people's interests. People can donate more than their time, more than their money. They can essentially donate things like energy as well, which is vitally important. When you think about the cost of running these data centers, people often talk about, whoa, the other issue is, geez, it costs millions of dollars a day to run maybe something like ChatGPT. I have no idea what it really costs today. Nobody, I, know, I don't know if anybody really knows, but it seems reasonable to guess that. Um, well, what if all of a sudden through these types of in-kind donations uh, from other entities that believe in the value of this, that cost gets subsidized massively? Then, then you know, how does that private company compete with that? They might complain to high holy hell that it's not fair, but you know what? It isn't fair. That's, we've made a decision to value something above and beyond. So I think there's just a lot of opportunity here to craft this strategically. Um, and if it's done well, then you kind of turn it on, right? And it begins to operate. I, I th there's so much talent in the AI field that probably would align with helping do this because, in fact, they see that this is unsustainable. They don't want to all work for one of these big companies. They would prefer to somehow donate their knowledge and time to something more mm. cooperative. 
So I, I really think this part is quite reachable. It just requires the conviction of probably like a couple hundred people to begin with that know what they're doing. Uh, and then from there, you know, you ring it with a few thousand and then you're off to the races. It can move very, very quickly. In fact, we could come up with it right here, right now, today. <laughs> this, I mean, really, this is one of the first conversations about it that I know about. So why not think about it? You know, we, why not just think big and be like, hey, we could do this. Like the four, four of us sitting right here could start to initiate something like this if we wanted to. Uh, why not? If not us, who? And if not now, when? This seems like it's a pretty pressing issue. Yeah, just just to really quick, like I, I think to be more proactive and and not uh, devil's advocate on this one, uh, what well, like the the central problem I think with that that's solvable is uh, not to to even centralize that to where we're like everyone contributes to this one big open source one. It's to fragment it on purpose to say this is an open source thing that anyone can fragment and do their own because if you centralize it into one particular like everyone's contributing this one politics take over very quickly and then that yeah. becomes its own entrenched problem, right? So like it blockchains themselves, right? Like if if Bitcoin was the only one allowed to exist, we wouldn't have Ethereum, we wouldn't have all these others, we wouldn't have the layer twos. And so it's more like that, right? You, if we're using blockchain as a model, let's use blockchain as a model and like like, yeah. uh, same idea, right? Let people start their own things and let it be like evolutionary competition to an extent because we actually probably need more than one model. It'll probably turn out that like this LLM is good at this or this one's good at this. And having the competition, I think, will be very valuable. And so it's like, let's just make sure the technology is accessible for these sorts of groups to form and then let them form and then help them form rather than trying to organize one big one, I think. So would you see that? I agree with you, Devin. Would you see that as like a layer three, not to get too geeky on layers here with blockchain, but a kind of an application layer that would be open um, for the purpose of making it easier to operate these models on the lower level elements of the blockchain, the layer two, layer one, right? Which is the part you don't want to necessarily have to deal with because that becomes very technically fussy. Mm -hmm. So you have this sort of abstraction layer, I'll just call it the layer three, which is designed to allow like a thousand models to flourish. Um, and so we just solve that part, right? Uh, and then, and then what goes on top of that is whatever goes on top of that. So that's one way to think about it. It's just kind of like I mean, this open source layer three. Though, because there's like, there's the, the technology component in terms of like how the model actually works, the algorithms, all that stuff. And then there's the data side, which is like the actual model and the training of that model. And so it's like, we kind of need both of those things to be accessible for that yeah. fragmentation to be like successful. So people can't just go, I mean, obviously I'm not expecting or, or like thinking that open AI should completely open source their entire GPT-4 model, right? Like that that probably doesn't make uh, commercial sense for them to do that. But, you know, like if, if, you know, there's some other, even if it be a government run thing, whatever it is, enough building up that training of that model that, that uh, does it in a public way that people can learn how to train their own models. Maybe we get some micro models. Maybe people combine those into bigger models. Like eventually this idea of like helping people bootstrap that up so that, one company doesn't control like the model and that we have, cause you're talking about like uh, if we're contributing data to the model, then we should have some ownership of that model. Well, then we need to also like make sure that that training method or that method of taking our data is also like an accessible thing. So if you're talking about it as like a, a layer three, we also need to make sure that like the data that attaches to is accessible and the, the methodology or the algorithm is accessible. And I think if you open source that stuff out uh, it makes sure that like people can't just, you know, take it over, I think. Yeah. 
And I do think that gaming poses a really interesting like vertical for some of this early adoption here around AI, because as Tim, you know, like, you know, AI and gaming, they, they just go together like peanut butter and jelly. There's something half there that's the really, really strong <laughs> half, and half from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, but also gaming is kind of safe in a way, like it's different than, uh, say, yes. Wall Street, where you're like, dude, you yes. don't want that to go wrong in a Wall Street context. To, to Devin's point, like you don't yeah. want people breaking in there and doing stuff. But yes. uh, gaming, it's like, uh, it's a little safer. It's not not without some potential risk, but it seems like a juicy place to begin yeah. with some of this thinking. Yeah, you, you know, and that's, there's a maxim I go by when I do game design, and that is, um, you know, all games are simulations, but not all simulations are games, right? And that means when you're building large right. virtual systems, you have to account for good actors, bad actors, and all the above. I'm struck by what you guys are talking about with, hey, we could invent it right here. It's it, Whether it's the allocation of the distributed resources to generate stuff, um, and to Nico's point, which models we're talking about, whether we're talking about diffusions or LLMs, that's kind of less important as much as how you ad would do attribution as these models evolve. Uh, th that's a big open question, and let me give yeah. you an example. Chris McKinstry back in 2005 ran the MindPixel project, and if you've never heard of it, this was pre-blockchain and pre-deep uh, learning, um, or at least early deep learning. It was before it was used for deep learning applications. It was a project that just crowdsourced humans to answer simple binary questions such as, is the sky blue? And, you know, a thousand people would answer, and the answer would be on a scale of zero to one, and it'd be about 0.9 because, you know, sometimes it's not blue. Right. And when you put those facts together, he felt that he could use it as a training validation set for future AIs. Unfortunately, he passed away and the project fell into disuse. But he had promised his users that they would find a way to monetize it so that everyone who contributed would have a fractional piece of ownership pre blockchain. Interesting. Wow. And then, of course, now we're here saying, hey, we want to do the same thing that Chris figured out, right? We want to do things like that. Well, blockchain, of course, is a natural solution for fractionalized ownership, right? But then let's take the diffusion models. Let's look at like um, something that you're building checkpoints, like with automatic 1111. And here's what's interesting about image generation and generative adversarial networks, like the stable diffusion models. All these people who are making models right now, publishing them on Civit AI, putting them on a hugging face, right? If you look mm -hmm. at the metadata, you can see the hashes of all the other checkpoints that they merged with or trained on or did weighted some averages. Whatever they did to create their model, whatever they added to train it, you've got hashes of. But you can strip that metadata out. And there's no public signing certificate or anything for the proof right. of attribution. That doesn't exist right now in those models. Now we innovate that. We put that into that stream that we're talking about having this kind of system. Suddenly there's value. I think that there's a conversation to be had on a technical yep. and a production level. Yes, because at the end of the day, what the blockchain is doing is it's cryptographically signing every mm. right operation. Right. And potentially every read operation, but certainly every write operation on this decentralized database. So every time mm -hmm. you, you do a write operation mm -hmm. and you sign it, you have a verifiable history of the provenance of that, how that data evolved, which is the thing that unlocks attribution. And it's the thing that unlocks the distributed ownership and it's cryptographically secure, meaning you can't actually spoof that signature. You can maybe hijack the entity that did it. That's a different issue, but but nonetheless, the signature is valid. It's the immutable history, right? That makes it's the immutable right. history like attribution. Exactly, and so I think that is a seriously explosive innovation when combined 
with, as you're pointing out, Tim, like the creation of yeah. the data behind these models. It's super juicy, and that's what allows for, mm -hmm. I think, also code audits where, like, where, where is an AI misbehaving? Where is it sort of deviating? We haven't really talked about this, but these AIs yeah. right now have no accountability at all. Yeah. But in a signed environment, they do have accountability, and you can essentially audit them. You can yeah. look through the history, and if they go south somewhere... You know, you can potentially shut them down. You can flag them as basically yeah. toxic. Like we're not going to let them run, you know, in our area, in our cloud compute, et cetera. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because you, you've touched on it so well. And I just want to really hone in on this. Yeah. That attribution layer of generated whatever was used to train the model is critically important. My company did customer discovery with two dozen of like the biggest game developers on the planet talking about our generative slash autonomous workflow systems. And one of the biggest questions is how can we use these cool models when we don't know what images were trained them and we have copyright, we have legal concerns about them. You saw probably in the news that Steam prevented one game from coming onto the platform because they couldn't prove where their AI generated images sources came from, right? And so there's a difference between that, uh, between a human and AI generating games. And people are going, if we can have the chain of proof, suddenly those issues start to go away. Right. As long as that proof is either open systems and it's not using other people's intellectual property. But if the chains yeah. of proof in the generative AI, whether it's LLMs or whether it's, you know, diffusion models, if we can do that, there's value. And I'll even go further and say, Tim, there's also uh, sort of a market effect here where if it turns out there's value in signing all this data because it helps enforce intellectual property, because it helps enforce the quality of the language model and accountability then you get into the situation where you still need cloud compute services and environments to run these things. Yeah. These are businesses. A lot of them are Web2 businesses, frankly. And they could then begin to have a standard where, like, if your proposed, you know, algorithmic method you want to run on my service doesn't conform to these kind of signed et cetera's, I'm not going to run it. I'm just not going to do it because I don't want the risk factor of this thing having an escape or doing something bad. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly... There's this sort of an industry convention that starts to emerge that you should code sign, as it were, all your AIs. Your methods should yeah. be code signed. It's been, code signing has been going on for 30 years. It's why on a Windows yeah. PC, when you install a, an app from a website, it says, do you want to install yes. this thing from XYZ Publisher? Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't say it's dangerous. It yeah. might kill your computer <laughs> because it knows it's code signed. And then when you try to install something that's not code signed on your PC, you'll get the frightening little warnings. Like, I don't know what this is. It could be bad. And the answer is it's just not code signed, dude. The person yeah. didn't spend 500 bucks with GoDaddy or whoever to yeah. sign their thing. So I think these models, by getting the signing property, then it's really hard for, you know, immediately people like, the big, the big cloud compute services, which happen to correspond with the big three AI companies, by the way, would mm -hmm. probably start saying, well, we're not going to run on our cloud compute instance, you know, AI bundles that aren't code signed because we don't want to deal with the liability of being that cloud service that had this awful thing escape. And then you've got this sort of selection where who's going to mm -hmm. want to do that? Well, then these weird third-party services might agree to do it, but then yeah. they're all like skeevy. And then they have problems probably eventually opening bank accounts, getting insurance for the director and officers of the company because it's like, ugh, yuck. You know, they're full of liability. Um, so so this opens up that dimension, I guess, is what I'm saying here. Of, uh, oh, yeah, no, I love your forward-lookingness on that. Yeah, no, totally forward-looking because we've already seen the evolution of like the old checkpoint format to safe tensors to prevent code execution, right? Yes. You're absolutely right that soon we'll probably see people signing the models or coming up with a standard and, hey, we can be a part of that. We can start making these requirements right. because – if we're going to have any kind of distributed platform where we're having people host models and then be able to execute them, 
yeah, they're gonna there's there's a reputational uh, there's a reputational and a security yeah. uh, set of risks associated with that, and it's a very natural conversation to have. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. The AIs themselves all have a reputation at that point and, yep. a, and a I history. Just, I get worried about who's controlling that that code signing or that reputation because if you look at the way Apple's kind of maliciously used code signing, yeah. like they're like doing it for safety, but then also maliciously using it to control applications yeah. getting onto their platform, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both for good and bad. And then you have stuff like domains, for example, right? Like domains and certificates that gets abused by governments, especially the U.S., to pull websites down and things like that. So as soon as we start creating some of those control points that are really useful, they also are abusable by those that have access, right? Because we have to trust someone to manage a lot of that stuff. Now, at least we have like the decentralized aspects of the blockchains and that kind of signing. So I think we just have to make sure to keep that in mind that like we, we are doing it via code rather than via like control systems that like someone is just an authority of. Code and reputation. I think that's the key thing that David has been talking about from the beginning here is that there needs to be a reputational identity system, which there are standards for. We just have not adopted yeah, as an industry. Social credit. Like we just got to yeah. worry, like make sure we don't drift into Chinese yeah. social credit. I, system. I mean, I'm I, thinking more like I'm thinking more like let's encrypt, you know, TLS certificate right. standards, not. Yeah. Social credits from the uh, uh, CCC. The, the only problem yeah. which you guys kind of hinted at, like is um, like with the the stuff with certificates. Right. What happens is like um, everyone got trained to see that padlock. Right. And I, well, you need to make sure the website's secure with that padlock. Well, I mean, it turns out realistically, 99% of the time, the padlock or the, the HTTPS wasn't really a problem. Most people aren't man in the middle attacking your mm-hmm. website traffic. It was really like the, you know, phishing sites and stuff like that. So like people got trained to see that as a false signal of like, this is safe. And I think we just have to also be cautious to make sure that people like, you know, if they're trained off these, these signings that they know what, like, like for example, when um, in blockchain stuff, right, when people start taking over uh, websites and doing you know phishing sites to get people to like oh it's a free mint and then like Mm -hmm. say you know yuga labs instagram or twitter will get taken over and they're a trusted authority for this information uh we just got to make sure we have like good backup systems i think for this stuff to Mm -hmm. find ways like because the more we decentralize the harder it is for us to verify things in a way Mm -hmm. that isn't mechanical uh, in some way, right? We, like, which is good and bad, right? Like, we, the mechanical stuff is actually really great, but we have to have like non-mechanical fallbacks, I think. Yeah, or yeah. again, it's the situation of the checkout at the grocery store where there's no human to fix the problem, uh, and so like again, that then that starts to go back towards authority. So like, we just have to really smartly approach that fallback area to make sure yeah. that doesn't just turn into a backdoor for authority to control. I mean, there's this adage: don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think we can get into these rabbit holes where we, you know, you want perfection. And then until you get perfection, you're like, well, we shouldn't really do anything. But then the alternative is by not doing anything, there's a lot of other bigger no, problems definitely that, that emerge. There's some structurally ways to think about this like, like smartly, like ahead of time to look at the problems of the past and be like, oh, we can actually design around this. Like, yeah. like I said about the fall, fallback and yeah. like making sure that just as long as you're like, oh, hey, I know that if I give authority to like, say, a government, we know how they use like domain names. And, and sig- mm-hmm. so like we just make sure we don't do that. Uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, for these problems. And I think a lot of this doesn't require legislation or any kind of oversight. It's just social conventions using code and signing to just create attribution. All we're doing here is creating attribution. Yeah, exactly. And I also kind of wonder, once you have granular attribution on a blockchain related to these AI processes, then interestingly, the machine learning on that attribution is such that you could probably have entities that are pretty good at detecting where something is suddenly veering off track from its historical attribution. Like, like... Very, very quickly, you could have kind of early warning systems where it's like, geez, the behavior on this thing seems to have really shifted from being like super trusted to super not. 
probably it's been taken over. And so we're just going to red flag this as like warning, warning, like this looks weird, at which point humans can just look at it and be like, Mm -hmm. it is weird. looks like about 90 minutes ago it started behaving really differently. Let's just put it on a suspicious list, opt in. Until we sort out what's going, it goes into a container or something until it's yeah. sorted also out. And good, yeah, it turns out, you know, <clears throat> something yeah. bad happened. There was a takeover. Smart. Yeah, that's also okay. a good place for autonomous AI to be helping with that. Exactly. exactly. AI I have patrolling. AI. <laughs> I have exactly. practical questions. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you guys do, do, do your thing for a while, but now I want to push back. By the way, just to talk about the perfect and the good, um, it was just funny to have like a games founder talk to an ex-cybersecurity person, which is the good is, is good enough and then the, the <laughs> it needs to be perfect because I work in cybersecurity and I can, my, can get my ass fired. Um, so yeah. that was interesting. Um, just to, to take just one brief step back, uh, I feel like we're having two separate discussions. Well, kind of related, but one is about building more decentralized model and a decentralized AI. And then two is is essentially starting to sign pretty much everything we do online. Um, one question, I guess, which is related to both is, how does this work with the current data that already exists, right? How do you retro- retroactively make this work in an efficient way? Because the amount of data that exists today is is huge. That being said, the amount of data that gets created every day is only increasing. So, you know, if, if there's a cutoff point from which point you start actually signing everything and correctly, hypothetically, attributing everything, it's going to take a while to catch up in terms of the amount of data that's there. Um, David, I, I'm sure you've thought about this. Yeah. Look, I think it's easier to, to just start going forward wanting to do something. Like you're like, we're just going to go forward and do it. And so we're, now we're doing it this way. We're doing attribution. We're, we're, we've decided to sign certain data events, et cetera. So you do that. And then... Once you establish that uh, functionally, it's going to have a shakedown cruise. There'll be a lot of glitches and issues. And, and when you get to a point where it seems to be scaling and working, then actually I think you can have a side project where you might want to go back in time and ask yourself, knowing the best practice of how we do it currently, let's go back in time now and possibly sign a bunch of stuff that was done before we were able to do this. But let's not munge the two together. Let's first just get it right going forward. And then, and then I think going back is a project that could be done. Um, and the scope of it, scale of it, how to do it, will be infinitely more clear by having gone forward and just done this correctly to begin with, without any legacy like yeah. technical debt, so to speak, or anything else you're trying to deal with. And I think it's safe to say that you know, naively hashing all the old stuff is not the solution because you know, you train one yeah. more image on a checkpoint, the hash is completely different. So there's there must be other systems that we come up with. I just think about attribution right now of even quotes, right? Where people misquote like famous historic figures, like mm-hmm. attribution that's well documented. We still can't even get right uh, mm-hmm. because there's I'll, no like code enforcing that. And I'll point out that the the onset of the it's interesting the sort of idea of the deep fake, you know, which which I think we've all heard about this now for 18 months. It's been like a thing, like this word deep fake. But at the same time, we haven't really seen it at scale. Like I don't know if anyone on this call is like, oh my god, we like we're all detected it yet. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or maybe we have but but kind of wonder when this thing is gonna really, really erupt, you know, into a real problem. And and then you go back to attribution, where it's like, well, there is no attribution on social networks, really. I mean your handle on Instagram or on Twitter is just like whatever. You just made that account, right? There's no accountability or attribution to that. So that's where these deep fakes often come from. It's a relatively new account with no authenticity to it. Now all of a sudden 
with this attribution model, yeah, you could put a deep fake out there. You're not going to stop that technology. You'll be able to create a perfect version of me on a podcast saying really stuff that I'll be so deeply embarrassed about I want to hide under a rock. But if the attribution doesn't make sense, everybody can cackle and say, well, obviously, it didn't come from anything attributed to David. Um, that's an interesting question, how deep fakes may drive the demand for attribution as well by everyday people. Because at some point, if it really does start to touch everybody, like just imagine kids for a minute, like teenagers, being able to do deep fakes around each other. So every oh, little geez. quarrel happens in the life of oh. a 14-year-old can start manifesting, right, in some super scary yeah. deep fake thing, which I is mean, just a mess. We've been for a long time. We've got, no, right, no, no, no. But this we, is, we're this talking is, Black this Mirror time. territory here. We're, yes, we're exactly. It is Black, Black Mirror territory. Mirror. Yeah. Correct. Let's just assume TikTok videos that are so like, oh, my God, they actually, you know. So at that point, attribution, like every mom and dad is going to be like, I want attribution too. Cause like, I can't deal with the fact that my children are affected by this now deep fake yeah. reality. This hasn't happened yet to be fair. Like I haven't seen it at that yeah. scale, but if it does happen, I hope it wouldn't, but it's hard to believe it won't. It'll happen um, at the government think... level first, probably when it comes to like trying to incite war or like that sort of like spy craft kind of stuff where, where yes, that's happening. It there. I mean, it probably already does. And like the, 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 I think it was the CIA or one of those organizations in the U S specifically said like they wanted to do deep fake stuff for like that kind of purposes. And so like, right. I think uh, and we I, might I, see it there, but not know we're seeing it there first. I'll just say that when it shows up in, in eighth grade, like it's going to be a different level of concern than when it's showing up at some abstract battlefield concept, like eighth grade kids doing deep fakes at scale to yeah. each other around every little thing that bothers them. Attribution and accountability is it's like, it'll literally be like fix this in two days. And the pressure on meta, the pressure on these companies will be so demented at that point because you'll have literally millions of parents just flipping out. Apple, by the way, might just literally ban those apps off the phone because at the yep. end of the day, who, what's the vector? Yep. It's the iPhone. And they might just say, you know what? Until Meta fixes this, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, you're off the app store because you're not guaranteeing your terms of service anymore. The, <laughs> boom. And then they have – can you imagine what that would do to their like stock price? It would just crater by 30 40% in 24 hours. So, so all of a sudden, cryptographic attribution could show up wildly fast because they're like, dude, if we don't do this right now, like we're not getting back on iPhone or whatever. So, I mean, these are just extreme, like, out there ideas, but are they that extreme? Because remember, again, what it's like to have 10 million parents flipping out at scale in the United States. Like, you do not want to be on their side of that. Like, you're done, you're toast. Like, that thing gets solved in literally days, like way, way fast. So deep fakes are kind of, I think, an interesting pressure point for common people, as it were, like non-techie nerds to say, oh, shoot, how do I know this is yeah. a deep fake? And the answer is attribution. Like well, it's funny we use the word term deep fake instead of forgery. It's like I was yes. I actually yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was in high school that would <laughs> true. print out fake report cards for me. Like I had ones that nice. were fake movie tickets. Like so like was I doing deep fakes in high school? Like, you know, the dot that explains so much, by the way. I, yeah. It yeah. does really. I know. That's know. why he but got where he is today. Know. Right. But I just feel like there's that idea of like that kind of stuff. Like I could forge my teacher's signature if I wanted. Like, was that a deep fake of my teacher? Like yeah. and so this is more just like multimedia forgery is essentially yeah. what we're talking about. We're just using yeah. a new term for it. So here's something, Devin, you, and you mentioned that, you know, like people have been getting quotes and attribution wrong for so long. But what have we been seeing that perfectly goes in with what David's talking about? Go to Reddit. If you make a grammar mistake or you call um, Ukraine the Ukraine, you're most likely to get a bot that attaches to your comment and instantly says, hey, by the way, just so you know, here's the reasons why you don't want to do that. And those self-correcting bots that are like infecting social media platforms, right, are just a sign of how we're going to start. It's a sign of like that attribution issue you're talking about. 
that's just going to cycle into deep fake detection. It's going to cycle into, hey, this content doesn't look like it came from you, right? So we already see right. that the prototypes of these these models exist. They're just being used for like like simple trivial things right now. And they're not interoperable, and right. they don't really scale in a meaningful way. They're yeah. ad hoc. Mm -hmm. So this allows for interoperability and scale. Yeah. I think alongside powerful. these problems that we also need to, like not in this conversation, but like mm -hmm. in general, identity is like a huge part of solving this because if you yeah. can't protect identity, then identities just get hijacked to, to yep. do these things. Yep. And then you like, oh, like this person's blacklisted because their identity was used to do a deep fake, but yep. they, it was just someone stole their password. So like, yep. I mean, that's an aside thing. I just wrote a brief yeah. that like that's something that yep. really also needs to be seriously addressed yep. and blockchain can help with that, but it's, it's far yep. from perfect. So do you know yeah. in the United States what every American citizen pretty much just knows as their one secret private thing? The one thing that's like their secret private thing? Social security number? That's right. Our social Dude, security number. I knew that. Yeah. Right? We don't, yeah. we don't even have a government-issued central ID. Like our government just had to say, hey, that's not in the Constitution. So since we made a social security network, let's just go ahead and use that number for everything, right? We're, my country is not particularly good at educating its people to have one master identity that we can always keep secure and private. That, that's just not existent. And when I look at um, what I consider to be crucial things like decentralized identity documents, right? That is not an everyman solution right now. No one's going to go and memorize or write down a 256-bit encryption key and try to keep that yeah. private from everybody in their desk drawer, right? Well, so what, what are we going to do? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I read that uh, in South Korea, apparently, um, when you get a cell phone, you and you guys maybe know this better than me, but this is what I've heard uh, somewhat anecdotally. But when you get a cell phone in that country, you have to show your ID uh, when you get your phone and it's actually checked. Um, and it has all kinds of interesting repercussions in that market. Like, for instance, they really know if you're under the age of a certain age yeah. uh, on a phone. And so they can control like installing certain kinds of apps on your phone in a way that in the U.S. we can't control. Um, <laughs> You know, that's that's yep. an example where now instead of a social security number, they're using like this phone number essentially as a tool for the same kind of de facto solution. So there's all kinds of – and then I think in other countries like Estonia or whatever, they have this sort of digital identity they've created, which I think is very much tied into your biometrics, uh, I believe. I mean people listening to this will know better than me. Um, but there's all kinds of – you can learn. I think one pitfall I would just say for for the U.S. in general is this – inability to look outside of its borders to be like, well, how has this been solved yeah. like in other jurisdictions for better or worse? And are there no, best man, practices out there? System, okay? It is exactly it, that kind of, but it, there's it, things it, out there that have been done that are yeah. interesting that could maybe point to like a best practice for how to do some of this stuff. Yeah. And America is a hard solution. Yeah. Ironically, it is, is one of the few places where Europe is actually probably ahead of, of the U S um, yeah. in, in these, these types of yeah. types of, uh, of, yeah. Um, yeah. You have to understand, ends. for Americans, it is not a technological issue. It is a political will issue. We are talking yeah. about a country, and I love my country. I really, truly do. That when barcodes came out, UPC barcodes, we had groups of people – generally by faith, saying this is the end times, the book of Revelation, mark of the, the mark of the beast. Yeah, the, everything. There, There is literally a popular store today that like sells like garden variety stuff in their store, hobby stuff, and they don't put barcodes on anything. They make the cashiers ring everything up by hand, right? And it's a national chain because of how 
much random fear there can be in a subsegment of our population about identity. So these are these are also social problems that have to be solved. Yeah. But luckily, those people generally aren't adopting AI first anyway. So to be fair, the people who True. want to use AI and want to leverage this stuff and protect themselves are the more likely people who will be up for digital solutions. On, on an AI-related solution, just something I like to mention occasionally because I think this was a cool – uh, so, you know, science fiction book idea that like mm -hmm. uh, from Neil Stevenson in one of the more recent books. He brought, I forget which one it was, but you you probably know what I'm talking about, Tim. Since you're already laughing, mm -hmm. this is I love Neil Stevenson. Video, I think it's called Perda P U R D A H. Mm -hmm. The idea was that there's like AI that can like identify you uh, based off of what you do, regardless of like using a different name or mm -hmm. kind of acting slightly different or whatever. Yep. But it's like this idea that there's a sort of fingerprint to yeah. your identity through yep. behavior that's identifiable. Uh, yep. Regardless of, you know, genetics, regardless of like lots of different factors that are, that are changeable in some way um, or not changeable in other ways. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so those ideas of like sort of futuristic where we're using AI or blockchain or these other tech to like do new things with identity, yeah. I think are worth exploring those different directions. Even though, yeah, sure, yeah. it was a science fiction idea in a book, but, you know, uh, it, it, yeah. iPads were in Star Trek first, you know, like yeah, that's yeah, just yeah, how yeah. it is with this stuff, so – yeah, no, no, no. Digital stenography is real and already exists. Um, I mean, to the point that uh, when you, if you interact on a major website, there is a JavaScript snippet in there that's watching your mouse movements, anonymizing it, turning it into a set of hashes and saying, hey, look, this dude yeah. moves his mouse at this speed in these patterns. His IP is totally different from this one over here, but they're the same person. That right? does it's like exist. Handwriting analysis people that are good at like, they can see like you can yep. sign it different every time, but yep. they can you recognize still see it. it's the same person signing it, yep. which is good because yep. my signature is different every time. Yep. yep. Yeah. That's why you run but it through an AI first to change all your text. Ha ha. Sorry, I have to rein every, everything in. David, you wanted yes. to say something. I'm going to give you the last word, but as part of that, I'd like you to summarize what we just everything that we discussed in like two minutes. So, and that's actually Tim and Devin laugh because they know why, why I'm asking. One, because we talked about a lot. Like we covered a lot of ground yeah. here. And I think it's, it's useful for you just, just, you have this in your head, you know, just lay out the foundation yeah. of what the, the, the issue we're really uh, talking about. Um, and it's going to be helpful for me as well. So I'll just, I think, high level summarize that we have an opportunity as a people to, on one hand, uh, change the nature of ownership around AI so that it winds up being more collectively owned for all of our collective efforts in making it happen. And number two, through the use of attribution, essentially cryptographically and all these processes, have a level of accountability as to like when things go bad or when they go well. Um, that's essential actually for AI to become trusted. So the, those two things, that ability to have collective ownership and that ability to have accountability through essentially signing events are, I believe, like major unlocks to enhance the stability and value of AI over time. And it's a kind of perfect sandwich between the Web3 tech, the AI tech. You put them together, you're going to get your Web4, and uh, that's Web4. It's essentially nice. putting those processes together. So that's the summary in less than two minutes. Fantastic. Web4, that's some, that might be a good thumbnail one. Although I've seen a bunch of games that were saying like, oh, Web 2 plus Web 3 equals Web 5. And so they were building a Web 5 game. And that just made me cringe my ass off and insta-pass on, on that that's, pitch deck. That's, that's new math. We don't do new math here. Exactly. Do, I, just, I, just, I just couldn't handle that anymore. Um, <laughs> anyway, good. This was fantastic. Um, yeah. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to, when we, when we um, put down the, 
the phone on this recording, discuss or find a new new moments to, I would say, continue this conversation. One thing mm-hmm. I want to dig into then is going to be how gaming ties into this, because I really liked what you mentioned earlier. Um, I believe it was you, David, that said that gaming historically has been a sort of playground. And it's it's easier to mess around and make a mistake in a game than it is in something like a financial primitive like DeFi, which is also something yeah. where you could potentially you know start experimenting here. So that is a discussion for later with this. Yeah. Devin, Tim, and especially star of the show, David, thank you so much for joining. This was um, really enlightening. I think in digesting this, um, we'll get some more questions, maybe some insights. Um, And um, yeah, listener, we hope you did as well and we hope you enjoyed. And with that, stay tuned for the next episode and we will speak with you then. Ciao. Thank you all. Ciao. Great to be here. Appreciate it.